Please join me in prayer before we hear the word preached from the letter of 1 John. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have been reminded in our call to worship, in the songs that we have sung, and in our confession, uh, that we are gathered here because of the one who died for us, whose wounds have indeed paid our ransom, whose blood has washed away our sin, that we bear it no more. We thank you, O Lord God, that he who is the rock of ages has indeed cleft for us because he himself was cleft in two, that he, O Lord God, was wounded and pierced for our transgressions. And Lord, it is because of this salvation, this redemption that Christ has purchased for us, the power of sin has now been forever broken, and we are free to serve and to obey you as you have intended us to serve and obey you. And so we ask, O Lord God, in the pursuit of following Christ and in obedience to your Spirit, that you would continually remind us that we have been set free from the power of sin, that it has been destroyed with respect to its power and control and dominion over us, and that we now serve the risen Lord and Savior, that we worship with clean hearts and clean hands and with a pure conscience, sprinkled by the blood of Christ, guilt-free, our Creator, our Maker. And all of this is through the finished work of your Son, which is applied to us through your Holy Spirit. We ask, O Lord God, for the help now of your Holy Spirit, that we might continue to abide in Christ, to live for Him with joy and with thanksgiving, with Due diligence, old Father, paying attention to the way that we live, that we might honor and glorify you as we seek to honor and glorify our Savior. This we ask with the help of your Holy Spirit to do so, for it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to read First <coughs> uh, John 3, verses 4 through 10, and uh, we're going to mark here a transition in the letter as John begins to move from talking about being children of light, walking in the light, to what it means to be able to walk in love. But before we get to that part of it, he wants to lay down uh, even, even clearer fashion the fact that we have been redeemed and we are no longer under the power of sin. And so John writes, uh, beginning in verse 4 of 1 John 3, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now I'm going to show you a picture here. Carson will put that on the screen. That's uh, circa 1964. The guy in the middle with the dark hair, the grown-up, that's my dad, Anthony. The guy with the spoon to the left there is my brother, Anthony, uh, my only sibling. And uh, the young fellow with his uh, chin very glumly in, uh, in his hand there is me. Uh, I don't know why I'm so sad, but I just am. I also noticed there are two relics in that picture that many of our young people, if not many of you, don't even recognize. Uh, one is directly over my head, which is a transistor radio, uh, which no longer exists except in museums. And the even older relic is the telephone above my father's head, that, that big black thing um, that we no longer have in our homes because we carry our phones in our pockets. I do remember that phone. You, it had an adjustable ringer, and when it rang, it was the only phone in the house, by the way, uh, and when it rang, it was like a fire alarm going off. I mean, it just, it would uh, ring through the entire house. I show you that picture simply because the, the, the purpose of there is to see a, a family resemblance. Um, when uh, I looked at that picture, my nephew sent me this picture. He was going through some old albums. And there's definitely a family resemblance between my father and my brother and, and, uh, and myself. But then I also see in that um, the resemblance with some of our children as well as our grandchildren. And it's interesting, right? We, we notice that whenever children are born, they bear a physical resemblance to their parents. I can remember that after our first son, Matthew, was born, it drove my mother to distraction that for several weeks after he was born, she couldn't quite place who he looked like. If somehow it was very important for her to trace down whom he resembled. Uh, and as children grow, um, not only do they begin to resemble their parents more physically, but they begin to take on other forms of resemblance, their personality. They may be an introvert or an extrovert. They may have a, a particular sense of humor. They may be very witty or their humor may be dry. They also may have developed one of the parents if they have a sense of fairness, right? Some of our children have a strong sense of justice and mercy, uh, and others may be more athletic, some may be more bookish. And so the, the point I'm making here is that just as our children, just as we grow up to resemble our earthly parents, John is making the point here that we as Christians, as we grow up in our faith, we are to grow to resemble God the Father and God the Son, and we are to do this with the help of God the Holy Spirit. It's a responsibility of the Holy Spirit to help us grow into that full resemblance of the Father and the Son. And the way that the Spirit helps us grow to resemble God the Father and God the Son is by helping us to walk in the light as God is in the light, through having an intimate and deepening fellowship with the Father and the Son. It is the Spirit who helps us walk in the light by practicing what Jesus preaches. It is the Spirit who helps us abide in Jesus and to live in Him and to bear fruit for His glory. So that whoever practices what Jesus preaches, whoever abides in Him, will come to resemble not only Him, but resemble the Father. And so that really is the big idea for my message today, that whoever is born of God will come to resemble God the Father and God the Son. 
So stated positively, you could say that the Spirit helps us to uh, grow to resemble the Father and the Son by helping us practice righteousness, by doing what's right in God's eyes. Stated negatively, which is the way John does it here, is that the Spirit helps us to resemble the, the Father and the Son by helping us not to make a practice of sinning. And this section that I've read to you, this really opens the door to the second part of John's letter. Because until now, he has drawn the line between those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. And remember, John is very, very distinct and in, in almost confrontational in his language in drawing this contrast. That if you're walking in the light, then you are born of God. If you're walking in the darkness, then you're a child of of the devil. There's no in-between. It's language that we might find, uh, in some cases, very, very troubling, if not offensive. It's not something we're used to being that straightforward. But John has no trouble with it because the stakes are that high. The importance of abiding in Christ is at such a high level for John that he is not afraid to use language that will be offensive and cause us to stumble or cause us to think as well in terms of how we're behaving. How well are we resembling the Father and the Son? And so whoever walks in the light, John is clear, practices what Jesus preaches. They don't make a practice of sinning. That's no longer part of their lifestyle. Whoever practices or walks in the darkness, he says, practices unrighteousness. They sin, he says, primarily because they deny Jesus is the Christ. Right? He's already drawn out the distinction that those who are of the Antichrists, they have gone out because they have denied the fundamental truth of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the grave in order to redeem us from our sins. So they, they don't practice what Jesus preaches. They don't love God. And as importantly, they don't love their neighbor as themselves, which are the two fundamental things that are required of every follower of Jesus. To love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so John says those are the hallmarks of someone who's abiding in Jesus. How well do they love God? How well are they loving their neighbor, their fellow Christian, their fellow brother or sister in Christ? Whoever is born of God will come to resemble God the Father and God the Son. Whoever is born of God will come to love his neighbor, her neighbor, as himself or herself. Now, everything John says in this section, everything he says in verses 4 through 10, is grounded in a single hope. He's already mentioned it in the beginning part of it, is that we will see Jesus, and when we see him, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. Last week I mentioned how when John wrote this letter, he had, toward the end of his life, sometime after he likely wrote this letter, he wrote the revelation of Christ. He saw not only the resurrected Jesus, read that in the Gospels, certainly John's Gospel, he also saw the glorified Jesus in the, in the revelation. However, there was another time when John saw Jesus, and that is on the Mount of Transfiguration. So as John is writing this letter about we, when we uh, see him, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is, John has in his mind this scene that is described for us in Matthew's Gospel. This is Matthew 17. That we're told that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, um, and they went up to the high mountain by themselves. And there, Matthew says, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, 
and his clothes became white as light. And so John, having been there, um, and despite telling us that what we will be has not yet appeared, John has in mind this scene, I think, in the transfiguration from Matthew 17. He may not know what we will be like when we see Jesus. We may not know what that will be like, but it will be something like what Jesus appeared like on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we're going to resemble in our fullness, says John. And that becomes the impetus no longer to practice sin as a lifestyle, but to practice righteousness. It is anticipating that day, but more, but just as importantly, we have received the foretaste of that even now. That if at the very least we will resemble Jesus at his transfiguration, that should be enough incentive for us to continue practicing what Jesus preaches, to continue abiding in him. That it's enough incentive for us not to make a habit of sinning and so miss out on the blessing of an eternity spent with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I looked up this, uh, this passage in Matthew 17 just with regard to the, the implication of that. And there was a, a scholar, and it's a rather extended quote that I'm going to read to you, but I think he captures the, the majesty and the beauty of what John is describing for us here as a motive and an incentive for us to practice righteousness. And so a fellow by the name of Jay Bame writes this, that what is promised to believers takes place already for Jesus as the bearer of a unique call. It does so as uh, the anticipation and guarantee of the new reality. It shows that the glory of consummation is the goal of his way of suffering and death. As regards believers, transformation begins already in this life, Seeing the glory of the Lord in the spirit, they are changed into the image of him whose glory they see. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul talks there about seeing the, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is not mystical deification, but a reattainment of the divine likeness. It does not take place by rituals, but by the ministry of the spirit. It is not for an elite few but for all Christians. It is not just a hope for the future, but begins already with the coming of the Spirit as a deposit. And it carries with it an imperative, the imperative that Paul lays out in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Set in the new world to come, Christians must reshape their conduct in accordance with it. And then here is the money line. This takes place as their minds and wills are renewed by the Spirit. They are thus to become what they are. So John, like Paul, and there's a consistency in the Gospel writers, in the New Testament writers, there's a consistency about practicing this new lifestyle as a result of being transformed from the inside out through the work of the Holy Spirit, that we become what we are. And John has already told us with a majestic wonder, we are now children of God. 
And we will be children of God at the consummation when we behold Jesus and we will see Him and be like Him because we will see Him as He is in all of His glory, in all of His brilliance, in all of His holiness. And we will be like that. You may not feel holy now. You may not feel righteous now, says John. But that is indeed what we are in Christ. And it is as we put our minds to thinking about that future day in light of what Christ has already done for us now, that becomes the motive and the incentive to continue to pursue him. It's as we think about the beauty and the glory of Christ, as we meditate upon the power of the cross, as we become, if, an old word, if we become besotted with the glory of God, literally drunk in our spirit with the, with the mercy and the grace of God, as were the first the disciples on Pentecost Sunday, if we become so besotted with that glory, so besotted with that grace and mercy, so soaked in it, so imbibing of it, that drives us to renounce our old way of life because Christ has conquered that, we've died to that, so then we now can live as we are, set free, liberated from all of that from the past. No longer tied to those encumbrances and the sin that kept us from coming to God and our guilt and our shame, but now having it all dissolved and washed away by the blood of Christ. Whoever is born of God, says John, resembles the Father and the Son because the Son has made that resemblance possible by living and dying and rising again and then coming back. And so whoever is born of God will resemble Jesus by not making a practice of sinning. So you look at verses, and I'm just going to focus on these verses. 7 and 10 we'll, we'll leave out for the moment because they'll come later on. So John says in verses 4 and uh, following, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And John draws a distinction here. There is sin, and then there's sin which is lawlessness. So sin is, is, is missing the mark. Right? Sin is, uh, it would be, let's say, Pete Alonso striking out with the winning run on third base. Right? That's a sin. But if, if, if Alonso goes up and deliberately swings at balls out of the strike zone, that's lawlessness. You just don't do that. Right? And so sin is missing the mark. Lawlessness is this willful rebellion and, and the rejection of God's standard of moral behavior and purity. And so, and John says the reason why is because Jesus appeared, you know that he appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one uh, who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, 1656 is probably a date not many, or a year, not many of us have paid attention to. But a very important thing happened in that year. Uh, a Puritan by the name of John Owen wrote a book uh, called Of the Mortification of Sin in Believers, Etc. Always love that. The Puritans always edit that at the end. Yeah. Of the mortification of sins in the believer and etc. <laughs> right. Mortification, the putting to death of sin. 
he based that book on the second half of Romans 8.13, which says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He wrote the book, he said, for two reasons. He believed that too many professing Christians were, as he said it, too at peace with the world. They were like the, the Antichrist that John describes, that they were very comfortable in their religion, but not pursuing a full-fledged relationship with Christ. And then secondly, that much of the teaching against sin in his day uh, produced a superstition and self-righteousness and, I love this, an anxiety of conscience. Uh, they produced a self-righteousness, a Phariseeism. Uh, a, 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 a Christianity was based more on morality than our relationship with Christ. And so taking Romans 8.13 as his text, Owen explained the importance of putting to death sin in the body as a responsibility of every believer. And in fact, in one point, Owen says famously in uh, this, this line, and it, it, you know, us reform types love this one, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You sort of dwell on that for a moment. Right? Uh, to which point John would say amen. The reason why John would say amen to a comment like that is because of what he's just said in verses 4 through 10. That Jesus appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And it's interesting, you know, that word destroy has, in, in our modern parlance, come to mean a lot of things, right? You, if you troll the internet, you'll see headlines, so-and-so destroys, <laughs> right? You usually mean they, they beat him in an argument or something like that. In the same way, Jesus destroys sin. He annihilates it. He removes it as an obstacle between us and God. And so John says amen to the fact that we must be killing sin or it will be killing us because Jesus appeared to take away sins. We know this. He's already said it in 1 John 2.2. Jesus is a propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for sins. And by his death, he removes sin as the offensive obstacle between God and us so that there's no longer anything in the way between our intimacy and our fellowship with him. And then he says that in him, meaning Jesus, there is no sin. Notice the present tense there. Jesus is sinless. He didn't become sinless. There never was a time when he was not sinless. He didn't do anything to become sinless. He is sinless from everlasting to everlasting. And by virtue of faith in him, he transfers that sinlessness to us. By virtue of being the atoning sacrifice for sins. And the surest way to be killing sin, says John, is to abide in Jesus. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean when I say abide in Jesus? Well, a couple of things. Maybe I can illustrate this. So, so some of you are uh, you're, you're, gonna, you're pursuing a particular career, but you may be in a job that you don't like. You see a job out there that you really want. That's your dream job. And so you've applied for this job, and you just haven't gotten it. You've, you've had a couple of near misses. But then suddenly, one day out of the blue, Somebody picks up your resume and calls you and says, hey, um, we found your name. We'd like to give you that job. That's your dream job. You weren't looking. You, you, you stopped looking for it. You thought you would never get it, and you got it. Now, when you walk into that job and you sit down and you start working with you, your fellow employees, how do you treat that job? You don't treat it disdainfully. You don't take it lack, in a lackadaisical fashion. You work hard to perform well because that's your dream job. You are abiding in the work that you have so longed to do. 
Or, or some of you may have uh, wanted to get into a, a school for a, a long, long time, whether it's a, um, a prep school or a college or a graduate school, and you finally get into that school. Right? And once you're in there, well, what do you do? You, you work hard. You soak in as many classes as you can. You find out who are the best professors, and you go and you listen to them. You abide in that by doing the work necessary to, to do well in that school, to soak in everything in that environment. Or, or some of you have been looking for a new place to live, an apartment, or maybe saving up for a house, and you get that home, you get that apartment. How do you take care of that house? How do you take care of that apartment? You, you, you take care of it, you, you, you nourish it, right? You, you, you do whatever you can to beautify it, you abide in that home. Now, here's the thing. If we work so hard to abide and to do well in things of, let's say, an earthly nature, John would say, how much more diligent should we be to abide in the one who died for us so that we might abide in him? How much more diligent ought we to be to think about what it means to serve and to live for him uh, by practicing the very righteousness that he has transferred into us by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection? I, I like how uh, John Stott says it in his commentary. He says, the, the sight of Christ, both in present experience and in future prospect, is a strong incentive to holiness. These verses teach the utter incongruity of sin in the Christian. To see and know Christ, the sinless Savior of sinners, is to outlaw sin. To sin is to deny Christ and to reveal that one is not living in him. So what John is getting at, he's not talking about morality. He's not talking about doing good so that God will be good to you. He's talking about the fact of doing good because God has changed us so dramatically, so fundamentally internally that he is reorienting our values, our ethics, and our priorities so that we are holy now and we live out that holiness. And so Jesus came to take away sins. In him there is no sin, and he transfers that sinlessness into us so that we can practice holiness as a lifestyle. And then lastly, he says that the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the reference to Jesus as the Son of God here, which is the only time John uses it in this letter, the reference to Jesus as the Son of God is as intentional as it is theological. It's no mere mortal who died on the cross, you understand. No mere man who is pierced for our transgressions. No mere man who destroyed the works of the devil, but it was the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. This is in direct you know, contrast to what the, the Antichrist, the folks that went out from them, were saying. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by himself being destroyed on the cross. But his destruction was temporary. Sin's destruction and the devil's destruction is permanent. So the, the implication here is that by destroying the works of the devil, Jesus has also destroyed the power of sin over us so that we are no longer chained to that old lifestyle. We are no longer beholden to live the way that we used to live but we can now live in obedience to Christ as we abide in him. 
If we, if we don't put sin to death, says John, we'll find ourselves promoting a form of godliness that has no power to acquire eternal life. And so the reason we must be killing sin is because sin itself has already been killed. It has vestiges still left in us. We're still human enough to, to fail, but we don't make a practice of it. And we don't make a practice of it. We kill sin because it was sin that sent Christ to the cross. We kill sin because Jesus killed it for us when he went to the cross. We kill it because God hates sin so much that it required the death of his son to make atonement for it. We must kill sin because, frankly, as John says, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. We must kill it because no one born of God makes a practice of sinning why? Because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And remember what I said, sin is, is the failure to obey God's moral law. Lawlessness is the, is the deliberate rejection of that. Now, right away we have a dilemma, because it sounds as if John is saying two things that don't make sense. He's saying a Christian, it's almost as if he's saying a Christian does not and cannot sin. But he's already said back in chapter 2 that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So what's going on here? Well, if you, the translation we're using, and some of you may have a, uh, maybe a, a, the NIV, we, we use the ESV here. You may have uh, verse 9 and, and uh, verse uh, 10 saying, uh, keep on sinning. Right? No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That, that's the intention. So we're talking about John is not saying you can't sin or you won't sin if you believe in Jesus. What he is saying is you won't keep on doing it. You will, so that when you sin, if you, if you tell that lie, if you lose your temper, if you say that unkind word, if you have that lustful thought, if you engage in that, 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 that darling sin that you just seem to have coddled up to, um, the Holy Spirit is there to say, that's not you. That's, that's not who you are. That sin no longer defines you. That activity, that thought is no longer who you are. You are in Christ. So confess it and move on. And so the, the point of what John is making here is not, not that we will sin, because we will. And when we do, he says we have an advocate the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation, the atoning sacrifice of sins. What he is saying is that as we continue to abide in Christ, because of the sinlessness that Christ has transferred to us by his death, if you will, the distance between our sins grows longer in time. So we begin to resemble him more and more. So the, the sin that maybe so easily entangles us today begins because of Christ's death on the cross, begins to wither in its effect. And its uh, tentacles no longer bind us and we can walk more freely. And so we may get tripped up by it less and less over time. So whoever abides in Jesus undergoes a fundamental change in character. And this change is a result of being anointed by the Spirit, says John. 
And we, it's that anointing that comes through the preaching of the gospel, through the hearing of the gospel. It's a change in character that leads to a change in behavior. A change in thinking that leads to a change in action. We are sinners saved by grace through faith. And after we are saved, we no longer practice sin as a lifestyle. We practice holiness. Like I said, it doesn't mean we won't sin. It just means we won't keep on sinning for the simple reason the Holy Spirit will not allow us. It's like a... <laughs> I remember um, there was a... Some of you are old enough to remember there was a baseball pitcher named Jack Morris. Pitched with the Detroit Tigers. Morris had a fiery temper. I mean, he was just... He was foul-mouthed on the mound, and he would just lose his mind if the calls were going against him. His catcher was a guy named Lance Parrish. Big guy. I think he was bigger than Morris. And there was one game in particular where Morris was just losing his mind out on the mound. And Parrish had had enough. He'd heard this, you know, catching the pitches and all this. He walks out to the mound and he, he puts his hand on Morris's shoulder and says, you know, people can't stand you when you act like this. So stop it. That's the Holy Spirit. They come along and says, just stop it. That's not who you are. You're here to play a game. You're here to follow Christ. So stop being that way and start doing what you were made to do, which is to follow Christ. Just throw the ball over the plate. That's all you need to do. All this other stuff is just useless energy and wasted time. So the Spirit would come along and say, stop beating yourself up over repeating the same thing. That sin has been dealt and uh, dealt with by the cross. So pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and follow him. Don't wallow in it. Right? You, you, you may uh, stumble in that, but you don't need to stay there. You can walk around and, and follow Christ with, with a wholehearted joy in the sense that you've been delivered from that. That's the, the thought behind what John says in verse 9. No one who follows, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It's the, it's the continuous practice of it that makes it a habit, says John. So he's not referring to the isolated sin itself, but it's the continual doing of it. And his point is simply this, that for everyone who is born of God, sin is both abnormal and it's unnatural. Abnormal and unnatural. That's not who you are. It's not who we are in Jesus. But if anyone does sin, we have that advocate with the Father. So when you mouth off to your mom and dad, there's forgiveness for that. If moms and dads say the unkind word to the son or daughter, there's forgiveness of that, or the unkind word to a husband or wife. The larger point is that whoever is born of God will not continue to practice that. As one uh, scholar says, the believer may fall into sin, but he won't walk in it. And the reason why no one walks in it is because God's seed abides in them, says John. If we trace the, the flow of, of John's argument back to verse 20 of chapter 2, what he means by God's seed in all likelihood is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the Word. Right? We're anointed by the Spirit through hearing the gospel. And that abides in us. In the same way that you know, Jesus told the parable of the sower, right? and one of the, the seeds falls into good soil. 
and that soil produces, that seed in that soil produces a crop of 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's, I think, the implication here. And so we, we are indwelt by the Spirit, and He keeps us from making a practice of disobedience through the daily application of the gospel. And just so we're clear, because I know we, we did this, uh, all the CGs this past week went through uh, trying to articulate what is the gospel. Right? So the gospel, uh, in, in its simplest form, the gospel is simply the good news that God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life we could not, so that he could die in our place as the atoning sacrifice for sins, thereby making it possible for the Father to forgive us our sins. And in order for us to believe this, we must be born again through a work of God, the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who breathes faith into our heart so that we can be born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sins. The moment we're born again, we undergo a fundamental change of character. There's an inward radical transformation that takes place. We literally become a new creation. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, right? The old has died. Behold, the new has come. And with that new creation, this new person, this new man, this new woman, this new young man, this new young woman becomes this new character. Through the abiding influence of God the Holy Spirit, through whom we are born of God, the Spirit applies a strong internal pressure to keep us following God, in obedience, he causes us to lose our appetite for sin by replacing it with desire to do what's right. The Spirit inspires us to hate sin the way an arachnophobe hates spiders. I hate spiders. Not that I'm afraid of them, I just despise them. If I see a spider outside, well and good. That's where they belong. Come into my house, you're vermin. And you are dispatched, right? With do without remorse. Treat sin the same way, says John. Right? You see it out in the world, you see it on TV, you see it on the internet, you, you hear about it. That's fine. It's going on out there. When you begin to entertain it in your heart, you must kill it without remorse. Deal with it without dispatch. Why? Because it sent Jesus to the cross. And he killed it there. So we kill it by trusting in the fact that Christ has already put it to death for us. Calvin says it well. He says, It is not that Christians are wholly free from all vice, but that they, are, they heartily to strive to form their lives in obedience to God. Sin does not reign in them, for the Spirit does not let it flourish. Uh, an old, uh, a friend of ours in Canada used to have an expression that her dad used to tell her, you know, that the one who lies down with dogs will wake up with fleas. Right? Don't lie down with dogs, you won't get fleas. Right? Don't lie down with sin, you won't be tainted by it. Kill it, because it's already been killed. This is why John can then so confidently declare that whoever is born of God cannot keep on sinning. Because whoever is born of God comes to resemble the Father and the Son through the life-transforming power of the Spirit. 
That's the whole point of what Paul says in, in Romans 12 too. Being transformed by the renewing of our mind. To begin to think in the fact that I'm, I, don't want, I don't have to sin. So when that guy cuts you off or won't let you in on four, as often happens to yours truly, you just take it as a matter of life. That's what happens when there's traffic. That guy did not wake up at 7.55 to say, you know what, at 8.03, I'm going to cut Malanga off. No, he's just driving to get to work. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about sinning against you. Or when, when you're passed over for that promotion and you're tempted to get envious of the, of the person who got it, kill it. It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to help. Whoever is born of God comes to resemble the Father and the Son through the life-transforming power of the Spirit. Whoever makes a practice then of, of sinning gives good evidence that they haven't been born again. And lastly, just to wrap this up, that whoever is born of God will resemble Jesus. The positive side of this, whoever is born of God will come to resemble Jesus by practicing righteousness. John says, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Does it sound radical to you? <laughs> that when you, you think about Christ being sinless, he's transferred. That's, if that, that sounds radical to you, that's, that's exactly what John wants you to, to assume and to think. Because it is. It's life-changing. It's life-transforming. So it is evident, he says, who's the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Very simple litmus test. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that will become the theme of the second half of the letter. You know, uh, when, when, I was, when I was a kid growing up, I, 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 I know that there are, um, there are distinct cultures that are called shame and honor cultures. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I grew up in a shame and honor home. But I will say this, I, w I was what you would call a good kid growing up. Right? I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't smoke. I, di I didn't smoke. Right? You know what I mean? I didn't smoke and I didn't smoke. <laughs> I didn't drink. Right? And I didn't particularly swear either. I didn't misbehave. I was a good moral kid. Not necessarily because I wanted to be a good moral kid but because they didn't want to embarrass my parents. Now, that's a good incentive, but it's a lousy ethic by which to follow God. Because Christ has been good for us. Christ has been righteous for us. If you try to live a moral life by doing good, you, you lapse into legalism and Phariseeism and self-righteousness. If you live a life that is moral, morally pure, ethically clean, and holy because of what Christ has done for you, then there is a family resemblance that begins to develop. And so one, one last picture, and I'll, I'll just to sort of make the point. So there you go. That's, that was, that's a long time ago, that picture. I was about 30 pounds lighter, I think. Um, of course, there's me. There's my uh, oldest son, Matthew, in the middle. Uh, that's our youngest son, Jeff. This is just like 2009, I think. And there is, uh, there's baby Graham. Uh, so there are three, uh, two generations of Malangas. Um, my dad is not in that picture. He died, unfortunately, uh, years before that. But there's a family resemblance there uh, among the three of us. 
And, and I think there's a sense in which when we look forward, you can take that down there, Carson. You, <laughs> you can, believe me, take it down. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> we don't know what we're going to look like. I, don't, I didn't know what my children would look like until they reached maturity. They, begin to, they resemble me in, in my good points and my bad points. John says, grow up into Jesus because as we resemble him, we'll only mimic his good points because he is sinless. Keep before you, says John, the image of appearing sinless in Christ as he is sinless eternally. And you will not make a practice of sinning, but you will be killing it by practicing righteousness. You think about that. And let's pray and be prepared for, uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are in Christ, uh, righteous, holy, indeed sinless. We do thank you that when we do sin, there is forgiveness for that. And that it no longer defines who we are. But that we have been set free from it. Father, as we come now to celebrate and remember the Lord's work by partaking of communion, breathe into us, Holy Spirit, that freedom, that joy, that sense of deliverance, that we are no longer the way we were, but we are in Christ now all that we will ever be and need to be, even as we look forward to being completed in that at his coming. This we ask and pray, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.